0: you for the group which led us to meet the Lord this morning to prepare us to listen to his word. Sir Edwin Landseer was a great artist in England during the 1800s. At 13 years of old, he was such a great artist already that he was displaying his works at the Royal Academy in London, and he at a very young age was doing portraits of Queen Victoria and King Albert, or Prince Albert, rather. One time he was in Scotland in a cottage. I'm going to put this down. Where am I? He was in in Scotland in a cottage, and a maid had a problem. Yeah, I would appreciate that. I can't see anybody. (laughs) I'm a little bit shorter Mm than... That's great, thank you. He, um, When he was there, a maid dropped something and it splashed up against the wall, and left a horrible mark on the wall, as ugly, ugly, on this beautiful wall. The family was a little bit upset and they were going out. In the afternoon, he decided not to go. And while the family was gone, he took a piece of charcoal and he painted over this horrible mark that had been left by the splash of food. He painted a scene of animals and the forest with a piece of piece of charcoal from a fireplace. He made something beautiful out of an awful mess. And that's what the Lord wants to do with us. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to have an introduction and we'll be looking at our new life in Christ in verses 1 to 4. We'll be looking at a, a life that breaks with the old virtues in verses 5 to 9a. Looking I, I like that I'm sorry, I like that breaks with the old vices, five to nine, a life full of Christian virtues, nine to fourteen, and a life of harmony and thankfulness, verses fifteen through seventeen, and we'll draw a conclusion. Let's look back because we're chapter three starts a new section, a whole new section in Colossians. So far we've seen that there was a very large Jewish population in the city, and no doubt in this church. And there was a problem with Jewish legalism. Legalism, uh, There was imposing restrictions about food, observing days, saying if you want to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first, get circumcised, follow all these legalistic laws. And Paul has said in verse uh, 16 of chapter 2, Therefore do not let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, or a moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are just shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And the city, of course, many of the Christians came from the Greek culture. And there appeared to be a primitive form of Greek Gnosticism in this church, which developed more into the middle of the first and the second century, but it it was there beginning And it taught that the immaterial is from God, and everything that's material is evil, it was created by mistake by some small angel that shouldn't have done it, he did it, and what is material is wrong, the body is wrong, the body is a prison for the soul. And that led to asceticism. Asceticism, of course, is purifying the purifying the, 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 the soul. You purify the body so you can purify the soul. And a lifestyle that's characterized by abstinence and from all sensual pleasures and to to uh, pursue spiritual goals. Um Paul will Paul will say in Colossians three. Uh, since you die with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you belong to it do you submit to its rules? Handle not, taste not, touch not. Such regulations, he says, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. There was also false teaching about, about our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was not the second person of the Trinity. He was not very God. God could not take on a body. The body is evil. It's material. He could not die. And Jesus was just one of many spiritual creatures. Between heaven and us, there's a whole realm of different spiritual creatures. They call that the pleroma in in Greek, the fullness. And, And Jesus was just one of them. Not the greatest, not the least, just one of them. That's who Jesus was. And Paul confronts that teaching and bang, bang. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you've been given fullness in Christ. this word pleroma. he uses their word. Fullness of the deity, fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Jesus is not one of these beings between heaven and us. He is the head of all. So Jesus, Jewish ritualism, Greek asceticism were distracting the Christians from more important li- issues in their spiritual lives. False Gnostic doctrines about Christ were di- by diverting the, the devotion and worship of God's people away from Christ. So in chapter 3, Paul is dealing with these issues. And his argument is clear. I want us to be clear about what Paul is saying here. In chapter two, Paul has argued that the Colossians have been set from all, free from all these powers. They don't have to worry about these spiritual powers and worship them and appease them. You don't have to do that. Any, you don't have to do that. He now contends that the reason they were set free, God has sent you free for a reason, and that was to enable you to live a life free from moral reproach. And the key expression in this chapter three in these first 17 verses is "With Christ. In verse 1, we're raised with Christ. In verse 3, we're hidden with Christ. In verse 4, we're revealed with Christ. Paul's argument. Here's Paul's argument. He lists the works of our sinful nature that we must renounce, that we have to get rid of. That's verses 5 to 9. And then he lists the virtues of the new morality that we must embrace. That's verses 12 to 14. And in between these two sections, there's a bridge. I was listening to the musicians this morning, and they were wondering if there's going to be a bridge or not. Well, Paul puts a bridge between these two thoughts in verses 9 to 11. That teaches us that God has created a new humanity in Christ. We were created in Adam. Now we're created in Christ. And that new humanity is renewed in the knowledge of the Creator. So in the first four four verses, we have this new life in Christ. Verse four starts with the uh, the word if. And I don't like that word in English because it doesn't really reflect what's going on in the original. Uh, It does not express a doubt in the original language. No doubt about it. In chapter two, verse 20, we have died with Christ. In this verse, we have been raised with Christ. And this is the power source which enables us to live our new life. Friday was, the, was Remembrance Day. I was thinking about my dad. The last six or seven years of his career in the Canadian Navy were on aircraft carriers, H M C S magnificent HMCS Bonaventure. He was chief electrician. He always used to say that when he was on the small ships during World War II that he was a torpedo man, he looked after depth charges, and 5% of his task was being the only electrician on board. There was a small generator and a few light bulbs. That's an exaggeration—that's what he used to say. On the Bonaventure, he had 200 electricians working for him, and the big problem he had was there was not enough power. The Bonaventure was built during World War II, sat for years rusting in the in the harbor in Belfast, purchased by the Canadian Navy and transformed. And you see everything you we know, became electrical, radar, communications, uh, uh, computers, uh, aiming for communications and, and aiming cannons, and and Dad would come home at night, and I remember him saying, because I wanted to be an electrician like him, he, he trained me a lot in, in the electrical field, he would say, Doug, we have not enough, they want to add this equipment, we don't have enough power, and he was setting um, generators and, uh, and everywhere in the, in, in the corridors of this ship to try to get enough power to run all the new equipment. And... We need to change our lives, we know that. And the source of power is that we've been raised with Christ. And this is one of the main messages of this passage. Our power is being raised with Christ. Now there's an important transition between chapters one and two, the first two chapters we've seen in the past weeks, and chapter three. In the first two chapters of Colossians, there are great theological truths that flood our souls. And in chapter three, we're looking at the moral and ethical consequences of that. What does that change in my life? Our new life starts with a new orientation. Set your minds on things above. Things above, there where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. And I'll just suggest that the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and that we must set our minds there, uh, there are ethical implications to this new orientation. First of all, Since believers are in Christ, they already belong to the world above. You belong to the world above. The heavenly realm centers around the one with whom they've been raised. We've been raised with Christ, and the heavenly realm centers around that. And since he is in the position of authority at God's right hand, nothing can prevent access to this realm into God's presence. Nothing. Do you have trouble praying sometimes? Feeling guilty? feeling God isn't listening, you don't feel like praying, does that ever happen to you? Maybe I'm the only person that happens to, I don't know. Nothing can prevent access to that realm. There can be no basic insecurity about the salvation that we have in Christ and his final income because Christ is sitting in heaven at the right hand of God, position of authority, and we are there with him. That's our position. Secondly, Christians already have knowledge of that realm through faith. We don't need legalistic decrees that telling us we can't eat that and we have to do this and we have to celebrate uh, 26 Sabbaths every year. Uh, We don't need ascetic rules to mortify, to put to death our body. We don't have to deprive ourselves of food or whip ourselves or, or starve ourselves or expose ourselves to the cold. We don't need angelic mediators that are between us and God in this pleroma. We don't need that, we have knowledge of the realm of heaven through Christ. And thirdly, because Christ is not simply one of the serving angels, that that Pleroma, but because he reigns over all, our lives must be reigned by him. him. Uh, All our thoughts, our goals, our values, our desires and striving must come under his lordship. The second thought in this passage is that our new life is hidden in Christ with God. Our life is hidden with Christ. And once again, there are ethical implications to that truth. Our life as a believer in the one in Christ who reigns over the whole universe, uh, that's true, but this reality is not yet evident to all people or the majority of people. Here in Montreal, I don't think that a lot of people talk think about the fact that Christ is the one who reigns over the whole universe. The full demonstration of this reign is awaiting his return. And those who mock our hope and adhere to some philosophy, they base their beliefs only on what they can see. But our life is hidden with Christ, with God. And our life, which is hidden in the one who is seated at the right hand of God, is absolutely secure. Do you wonder sometimes if you're really saved? (laughs) Do you have reasons to doubt that sometimes? Hmm? Our life is hidden in Christ, and he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. It's safe, it's secure, no menacing power can cause us ultimate harm, and there's no need to try to please or appease any such powers. If you want to see the difference between Christianity and every religion that was ever invented, All these gods were mean, nasty beings. And their worshippers spent their whole life trying to appease them. And our God is love. We don't need to appease him. We don't need to appease the powers he's created. Our life is hidden in Christ already. Secondly, the exhortations about embracing a new morality are based not on our own feeble moral will but from being united with Christ. If I had to clean my life up, deal with sin, look for victory over things I do which are wrong, which are sinful, and if I had to do that in my own power, in my own willpower, the battle would be lost before I even started. But I'm united with Christ and that gives me the ability. Secondly, we have a light that breaks with the old vices in verses 9 to 9a. Now we're all a work in progress. Friday afternoon, you know, Friday morning actually, I finished the last touch on this new building. The garage had a roof that was leaking. We're going to redo the roof, but contractors are reserved two years ahead of time in three rivers right now. So I got up on the roof with 10 5 five-gallon cans of pitch with rollers and we put over an inch of pitch over that whole roof um, I, when I went home and said, Honey, would you rub my back for me, please? <laughs> that building was a work in progress. We finished it Friday afternoon. The Lord gave us a wonderful day. Winter has come, has arrived. There were habits and tendencies that were part of our own life. They need to be eliminated. They need to be put to death. And these sins are serious because of them. The passage we read this morning tells us that the wrath of God is coming on all mankind because of those sins. So restrictions like do not touch or don't handle, don't taste, they're external. They do not solve long-term problems. They do not solve the root problem, inner cravings. You can read the Ten Commandments all you want, but you have to understand them in the light of Christ's teaching, in the Beatitudes, where we learn that in the Sermon on the Mountain, that those, those commandments deal, should be dealing with our heart, with our inner being. And that's where the problem is. Now, Paul starts off with some sins which must be eliminated. And he's very clear. He starts off with sins with, of sexual uh, immorality. He talks about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And it's interesting that Paul frequently warns about these sins in his letters. And we live in a society with lax moral values, which can easily influence us and infiltrate the church. Sex is God's great gift to mankind. We, we could be like those little bugs, aneba they call them. They, they get fatter and fatter and fatter and then they split in two. What, a, what an interesting way to reproduce. God gave us something a whole lot more interesting than that. Uh, It's a wonderful gift from God, and the devil is passionate about destroying everything good that God ever made. And so the devil is always trying to to ruin, to distort God's great gift to mankind, which is sex. He distorts it. And Paul says we need to get rid of that. We need to deal with that. We need to stop that. He's not against sex within the framework for which God has given it within marriage. Now it's interesting to note that he caps off his list of sexual sins with covetousness, which he equates to idolatry. Now if you know the Ten Commandments by heart, you know the last commandment is thou shalt not covet. I think we better get our catechism out and learn the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Covetousness it deals with, it's the last of the Ten Commandments, and in a sense, it sums up the other nine commandments. If, we're not, if we don't covet, we'll have a lot less problems with the other nine commandments. And covetousness is idolatry, Paul tells us here, because it allows the love of things to replace our love of God. And it promotes the idea that others live only for our personal amusement and purposes and gratification. It replaces the desire to give to others. And there's a sense in which covetousness is the root of a lot of sexual immorality. And that's why Paul has put it where he put it there. Now, Paul continues his list with sins of anger. And he lists things down. And, and, and these lists that we're going to be seeing, we'll find words that have a... Uh, their, their meanings overlap a little bit. It's always not always fat, easy to... to uh, Distinction between them. He talks about anger, and my understanding um, uh, of the Greek word here is talking about profound bitterness. Someone who's angry all the time. I was raised in an environment where there's a lot of anger. Everybody was angry all the time. A root, heart, anger all the time. And then he talks about wrath, and that's talking about a fit of anger. Increased a colère, we say in French, a, a fit of anger. That's talking about a demonstration exterior, a, a demonstration of what's going on in our heart, where we scream and holler and pound and so on and so forth. And then he talks about malice. Malice is an inclination to hurt others. And then he talks about slander. A blas- it's the word blaspheme in the original. It's the word from which we get the word blaspheme and is talking badly about others, tearing other people down. Obscene talk from our mouths. I love comedy. It's at the place where I turn my French TV on and look at uh, comedy shows. It's all dirty talk. Uh, You can't be funny if you're not filthy. That's the way our society is. And Paul says that's not the way, that's something we need to put to death. And then lying. And perhaps lying to ourselves is a source of much anger. If we really examine our hearts at the things, look at the things which make us angry, probably we've exaggerated the situation and we're lying to ourselves about reality. Anger is often the source of conflict and violence and murder. Lying is often rooted in attempts to gain advantage over others, and that's at odds with Christian love. And so those are sins that we have to break with. a few years ago um, I was diagnosed with um, prostate cancer and uh, I met our radiologists and surgeons and all the time, how they're going to treat this. And they decided they are going to give me I think it was 25 radiation treatments. Four or five mornings a week over a period of five or six weeks. After 15 weeks I said to the Young lady who was treating me, uh, that's enough. Don't need any more treatments. Um, I'm busy. It's every morning. Takes off two hours of my time every morning running up to the hospital and finding a parking place, which was the worst part of the whole experience. And um, let's just stop that now. She said, No, we've got to get rid of the cancer. You're going to continue to the last. Treatment, if I have to go and get you in a taxi, you're going to take all your treatments. She was, she was a strong lady. Um, I'm glad I went through with it. Looks like it's not going to come back. Sin is worse than any cancer. It has to be eradicated. It has to be put to death. It has to be eliminated. The third section is a life full of Christian virtues, verses 9 through 14. And Paul uses this image of stripping off old rags and putting on new clothing. I'll tell you that <clears throat> I know people that can jump into a cesspool and clean it up and come up smelling like a rose. When I work on something, I get dirty. I ask my wife, she washes my clothes. And when I finish with tip t- pitch on the roof, my clothes were thrown in the garbage can. Um, <laughs> And fortunately, I brought old clothes and new clothes, and I changed and, and went home after I washed my hands and my feet and my nose and everything else uh, with, with paint cleaner. It's really good for the skin. Um, <clears throat> but Paul used this image, tripping off old rags, putting on new clothing. A- and the expression, the new self that is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creation, that, that conveys several ideas. First of all, this new self is the starting point is not the result of daily struggling against temptation. Our whole nature has to change. It's not just giving up a a few sins and doing some things better. Uh, This new self, it's a starting part. We're born again. The Spirit of God dwells within us. We have a new being. We're created in Christ. We start there. Secondly, because the new is always being renewed. Paul says that we're being renewed. We need a continual renewal. The Greek verb, verb is in a present part, is a present part, participle. It's continuous. This renew. I wish I could say that 15 years ago, I was completely changed. I'm not struggling with sin anymore. I know people who think that they don't sin anymore, that they're perfect, and I know them pretty well, and it isn't true. <laughs> um, some, of the, some of the most carnal Christians I knew thought that they were sinlessly perfect. Um, they didn't have any conscience anymore, you see. But it's a continual thing. Mool says, a continuous putting to death of what is in fact already dead, and a continual actualization of an already new creation. Furnish says the believer has been made Christ's own and set on course, but all must run the race tirelessly for themselves. The the verb is in the passive. And um, you know, if I, if, the bite, if I bite the dog, that's active, if the dog bites me, that's passive, that means I receive the action. And so the verb is passive, and that indicates that the renewal is not the result of our own efforts. The new nature is God's gift, not a result of our willpower or our self-actualization. And our job is to work out the salvation that God has already worked in our lives. And fourthly, knowing God and God's ways are crucial to our renewal. If we're going to be renewed, we have to know God, and we have to know His Word. We have to know how He is. And the more we know Him, the more we resemble Him. And this knowledge comes from His Word. There's no sanctification, there's no Christian growth, without God's Word. And finally, this renewal comes from being joined to Christ. No system, no list of things we can do and cannot do will renew the image of God in us. Christ is the image of the immortal God. It is only in him that the image of God can be fully renewed. Now verse 11 tells us that when we are renewed, it will erase the divisions that separate humanity. I love Rosemount because... There are 16 different colors of people here. It's so good to see you all. That's the way heaven's going to be. Paul says, he gives us some pairs. The first pair says Greek or Jew. And that eliminates the legalism of the Colossian church, which which is dividing and and troubling the church. The second pair, barbarian, uh, Scythian, and free, talks about culture. Barbarian is a very... Insulting word for us, but it's a um, a word which describes a language that sounds like gibberish to me. In the Greek, it's less pejorative than it is to us today, but we all know what it is to try to talk to somebody when you don't know their language. We don't understand what they're saying; it's frustrating. But there's no barbarian, there's no Scythian, there's no free. The Scythians were nomadic herders who wandered in the plains to the north of the Roman Empire. They were considered to be brutish and savage. Many slaves were captured from the area north of the Black Sea. And Paul tells us that the renewal of God's image allows us to see slaves and masters, employers and employees, equally as image bearers. And this erases social and cultural bearers. The next presentation of Christian virtues begins by reminding us that we are God's chosen ones. We need to be reminded that if our lives are somewhat better than those around us, that is due solely to God's grace and is pursuing us, humility. We also need to remember that if God chose us, it is so that we might serve others, not for our own benefit. And the five virtues that are now presented are important for relations to others. They're similar to the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. compassionate hearts. And often in these lists, in the Bible, the first one is a general word which is explained by the words that are following. So kindness, sensitivity to others, genuine caring for their feeling and desires. That should mark a Christian. Humility, not always seeking the place of honor, seeing others as more important than ourselves. Meekness, the will to suffer wrongs other than to inflict them on others. That includes the idea of not insisting on our rights. Patience, enduring wrongs, refraining from exacting vengeance, and then love. This virtue binds the others together. We have been loved by God despite the fact that we are so often unlovable. We need to love others in spite of their faults. Finally, a list of harmony and thankfulness. And I'm just going to stop now because we're past our time. But there's a key word in each of these three verses. In verse 15, the peace of Christ In verse 16, the work of Christ. In verse 17, the name of Christ. I'm going to skip over. Next week, Nick's going to be speaking to us. Verses 15 to 17 are a bridge to the next section of verses. And Nick will teach us some of these verses next week. The Lord is mentioned seven times in these verses. In these verses 15, I'm sorry, in these verses um, uh, uh, 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, which Nick will be teaching next week. And we live under Christ's lordship. In everything we do, we must be conscious of his commands, his promises, and his sustaining power. In conclusion, we must control our thought life. The passage started off by saying, our minds must be set on things above. My dear friends, morality is a hard issue. It's not a set of rules. Rules do not make us more virtuous. And I'm going to ask, before we pray, is Jesus really the Lord of our lives? Someone wrote this, someone wrote this I stole it somewhere. We cannot move in and out of Christ's lordship whenever it becomes convenient and inconvenient. There should be a clear difference in the way Christians handle their sexuality, their anger, how they treat others who are different from them, and how they are forgiving and free from avarice. May the Lord use his word. May the Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts. May we change. May we put to death these sins which characterize our old life. And may we live these virtues which have, been, which have been presented by Paul here by the power of the Holy Spirit within us who applies his word to our lives because we, our life, is hidden with Christ in heaven. Father, you know our hearts. You know that we need to change. And you know it was so difficult to change, Father. Some of these sins are firmly rooted in our hearts, in our lives, in our habits. We turn to you. We confess this sin. We pray that you'll help us to root it out. And Lord, may we please you in our lives. May we demonstrate that we are true Christians. May we demonstrate the life of Christ in our lives in the virtues which we spoke about this afternoon, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.